0: Many of you will remember the story of the Tower of Babel. It is the last story in what we call the pre-history of Israel. It begins with creation, and then the fall and disobedience, and then the first murder, Cain and Abel, and then God starts over with the flood, and then we have the story of the Tower of Babel. It's one of the just-so stories of the Bible where where, where the, the people seek to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. And God sees what they're up to and destroys the tower and scatters the people. And it explains why there are so many different tribes and languages and nations and peoples. Pentecost reverses the Tower of Babel. At Pentecost, the whole story of this dispersal is renewed and restored humanity it's almost as though the the stories of the first part of the bible are almost like a model and pattern of the christian life we're born we become aware of other people we become aware that sometimes those other people stop us doing what we want what we want to do and we wind up in power struggles and often scapegoating others and often those struggles result in someone's death as they did The story of Cain and Abel. We perhaps see the chance to renew our lives and we enter the waters of baptism. It's the flood, it's about drowning, it's about being restored to new life out of death, much more than it is about cleansing or purity. These are dangerous waters. And then Pentecost comes and the Tower of Babel is reversed, and we come up out of the water and a given community, special people, the new humanity, and perhaps when the spirit is made manifest, the gift of understanding one another across differences, across languages, and across cultures. The Tower of Babel was probably a tower called Etamanaki. It was a ziggurat. It looked a bit like some of those Mayan uh, pyramids. It was uh, built in Babylon and it was destroyed finally when Alexander the Great tried to restore it. He was trying to build it back up and he died and the tower was restored. These just so stories reflect fundamental truths about languages but one of the things that that differentiate us one from another is the language of power and we hear about power in the reading from Acts and in the reading from John, we hear about the power of the Spirit, the power of God. And it is very different than the power that we tend to exercise when we seek to exercise power over one another. There's a, there's a novel that came out um, this earlier this year that some of you will have read called The Lifeboat. It's a first novel by a woman called Charlotte Rogan. And it's the story of a hardy bunch of survivors of a shipwreck who are in an overcrowded lifeboat. And there are many, many stories and moral dilemmas and questions that come up in this bit. But one of them is about who's in charge. One of them is what happens to a community when when someone needs to be in charge. And initially, the person in charge to whom everybody turns is a member of the ship's crew, a rather shady character called Mr. Hardy. And he saves their lives. He keeps them alive. He keeps the boat afloat. He knows about rationing. He knows about how to catch fish sometimes with his knife. He's, he's really in charge. But there are some people on the boat who, for reasons it's not entirely clear, class, money, history, prejudice, whatever it is, especially the redoubtable Mrs. Grant. And Mrs. Grant starts a little whispering campaign, and there's venom everywhere, and it starts to spread. And suddenly, Mr. Hardy's not maybe okay. Maybe he's hoarding things for himself. Maybe he's not telling the truth. Maybe he's this. Maybe he's that. And slowly, the, the, the thing begins to turn not on people's reason, but on visceral instincts about where the power lies and who's in charge. And in the end, I'm not going to tell you too much about it in case you read the book, but in the end, it costs Mr. Hardy his life. He becomes a scapegoat so that Mrs. Grant and the others can be in charge of this community. It's a very human story. It's what happened with Cain and Abel, jealousy. It's what happens in many political campaigns, incidentally, where we tend to act not reasonably but out of instincts about tribe and culture and who's like us and what makes us feel right. It will probably happen in some sense next Saturday When many of us gather to elect a bishop, we're probably going to do it based on who kind of gives the sense that maybe kind of they're going to work out all right. It's not going to be a fundamentally reasonable thing. It is the same story that happened with Jesus. Jesus, who exercised the power of God without coercion, who exercised the power of God to overcome difference, To overcome the boundaries, the walls that we build into towers to keep people out and to hold on to power, to hold on to our place with a fear that if I'm not master of my life by controlling yours, then somehow you're going to control mine, and that's not okay. We get into these struggles. It's just real, and it's just human, and it's part of what divides us, and divides us, and divides us one from another. And God sends Jesus. And God sends the Holy Spirit and God opens to us a different kind of power, the power that comes from absolute integrity without coercion, the power that comes when we encounter one another without fear because we know above all we are loved and we are forgiven and we are free. I was talking with the parents and godparents of these wonderful children who are to be baptized in a few moments yesterday about how many messages the world gives us that we have to start helping one another see anew in the light of God. How the world will tell us that we are valuable when we can consume and how in the light of God we say, no, that's not true. You're not primarily an economic engine. You're primarily of infinite value because you are beloved of God, because you are made by love for love. And that's what these children have to grow up knowing with every fiber of their being that they are valuable, because they are beloved. And in the same way, the world tells us that if we don't have power in our own lives, and that means somehow power when we encounter others, that we're gonna lose out, that we're gonna be lost, that we're gonna miss something. And in the light of God, they say no. Real power is when you give yourself away. Real power is when you serve. Real power comes when you encounter the other without fear. Real power is when you resist injustice without resorting to violence. Real power is the integrity of Jesus. Real power is the Holy Spirit leading us into what one theologian of our church calls mission into difference. Mission across boundaries, across the walls that God knocked down at Babel and restores at Pentecost. So we pray for one another. We give thanks for this gift of the Spirit and ask that it may be ever more operative in our lives. And we pray for these children who will come through the waters of baptism, marking the new life that we share in this new humanity being brought into being by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.